It has been said, I'm sure you've heard before, that there are no sure things except for death and taxes. But honestly, the older I get, the more I think that death and taxes are up for grabs. I mean, after all, the tax rate is always changing, and who knows when and how I'm going to die. In this age of information, where you can Google an answer to nearly any trivial question in the world, it's easy to forget just how little we know about the things in our lives that actually matter to us. Sure, with a smartphone, I could tell you with less than a minute what the surface temperature, the median temperature of Venus is, or I could tell you how to get from Bellingham to an obscure address in Edmonton. Well, maybe if I use Google Maps and not Apple Maps, I don't know. But anyway, I could tell you a lot of trivial things, but I still cannot tell you with confidence that you will have a great marriage. I cannot tell you with any kind of confidence that you will always love your job or have a job in the first place. There are very few things um, out there that are sure. I can't tell you that you'll never have a broken heart. Now, some of you have experienced some of these things firsthand, but we've all heard the story at least once uh, of the person who was fine one day, and then they go to the doctor, and bam, there's a lump or uh, something that came up on a scan. One day we find that the person we are ready to commit our lives to, all of a sudden, at least to us, was sure we were never meant to be. Some have gone to work, ready to put in a full day's work, only to hear that the, the company has reorganized and your services are no longer needed. Are there any sure things in life? In the early 2000s, Corey and I were living in the Bay Area of San Francisco. Uh, if there was ever a sure thing back then, it was real estate. I mean, people were making money hand over fist, buying houses, fixing them up, turning them over. Everybody kind of saw that, that the real estate was out of control, that the bubble was just getting bigger and bigger, but it just kept getting bigger and bigger, and everybody was winning except for people like us who couldn't afford a, a one-bedroom house. And then you all know what happened, right? The bottom falls out. Thousands and thousands of people crushed by debt. And frankly, I'm happy we couldn't even afford a home at that time. We'd be in trouble too. Our lack of assurance in life is as old as human history. In animistic tribal cultures, the answer has been some variation of placing trust in divine beings who have control over nature. So that if I can control the sea and the sun and the trees and the crops, then I have a good shot at having a good life year after year. In communal cultures, the remedy to lack of assurance has been to put our faith in the collective. If we can just pool together, work together, pool our resources, we'll be all right. We might lose our individuality, but we'll gain immortality through the collective. Well, the problem is, of course, deep down we all know that we have an individual identity. And even in a communal culture, we start to feel anxious that there is no assurance. And the other problem, of course, is there's never been a perfect communal government that always gets corrupted by sin. And one day you wake up and a government official is flying over in a helicopter that you're paying for by the sweat of your brow. In our culture, we exalt the individual. The mantra is, find assurance in yourself. Make your own luck. Get good insurance, if you can afford it. Eat fresh, non-GMO foods, if you can afford it. Get educated to make yourself more marketable, if you can afford it. Insulate yourself with lots of savings, if you can afford it. The problem is, is that even if you've done all of those things right, you can't assure your genetics. 
You can't guarantee against natural disasters. And the problem with all of these remedies or solutions to lack of human assurance is sin. In fact, the only thing I can tell you with confidence that you can be assured of, at least up to this point in the message, is that we will screw up pretty much any plan we have to assure ourselves of things. Now, there's a reason why I started this message so negatively, which you know is pretty out of character for me. Two reasons, really. One is, it's the truth. Uh, you know it, I know it. That's just the way it is in the real world. Second, it fits really nicely with our sermon series, which is titled, Following Jesus in the Real World. The gospel of Jesus is good news, and it's only good news if it's good news during bad news. So the gospel of Jesus doesn't just sugarcoat a portobello mushroom grilled on a grill and call it a ribeye. I'm sorry for all those veggies out there. I mean, actually, portobello is good, but it's not a ribeye. And, and the gospel doesn't pretend that it is. The gospel, Jesus himself enters into the messiness, the ugliness of life, and it makes us new. If there's one thing you get out of today's message, note takers, this might be it. It's that you and I can be assured of God's faithfulness. All right, that's it. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. But it could be it. If you want to tune out now, you might. You can be assured that the work he began in you will not end even in your most sinful moments. You can't undo what he's doing. You can't stop him. The love of Jesus is more powerful than your stubbornness. And I know some of you are pretty stubborn. So am I. That's basically how Paul began his letter to the Corinthians, a letter we started exploring last week. Now, if you missed last week's message, uh, just give me a quick minute to introduce it, okay? It'll be a review for some of you. Corinth the city he's writing to, is a city in Greece, down in the southern part of the country. And it was settled by the Romans in 46 BC. I know that's confusing. Trust me. The Romans settled it in 46 after they destroyed it in 146. All right. By the time Paul gets to Corinth in roughly 50 AD, it was a bustling community of roughly 50,000 people, located near a small strip of land that links the Aegean Sea on the one side and the Ionian Sea on the other side. It was a magnet for seafarers, for traders and merchants and criminals and prostitutes and riffraff of every kind. It was truly a pluralistic society. While the official language in the courts and in, in, in the capital would be Latin, the language on the streets and in merchants and trading would be Greek. Uh, but on the, on the street, you would hear dozens and dozens of different languages from all these people around the world coming to do business. There were hundreds of temples to the Greek gods and the Roman gods and some new gods that people would bring from all over the place. If you put Las Vegas and all that it stands for on a bustling seaport, you might come close to what Corinth was like. And yet, this is one of the cities where Paul, the apostle, planted a church. He brought the good news of Jesus into a society where people were being taken advantage of and were taking advantage of others. He brought a message of hope and assurance in Jesus into a place riddled with disease, violent crime, short lifespans, and an uncertain future that dominated um, this pervasive social anxiousness of his people. Through the message of Jesus, Paul took these early converts from paganism and some from Judaism, and he planted this church in the power 
of the Spirit. People who had no family were now part of God's family. People who had little or no social standing were part of now this gigantic movement of God's people. It was truly a life-changing experience for these early converts in Corinth. And yet, sometime after Paul left to minister to other churches, he heard reports that these Corinthian Christians were slipping back into their old ways. They were fighting among themselves. They were allowing sinful behavior to be openly allowed within the worshiping community. They were arrogant, and some of them were directly challenging Paul's authority, teaching things contrary uh, to the gospel. 1 Corinthians is a letter from Paul to the Corinthian church as a way of addressing some of those issues. And here's how it begins. Would you stand with me as we read uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9. It goes like this. Paul called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you in the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your servant Paul. Thank you for these words that were recorded in the power of the Spirit that continue to speak to us today. Holy Spirit, I pray you would open this word up to us, as foreign as it is, uh, different as the words are and the terminology, the culture, and help us to see what it is you're saying to us today and how we could respond with faithfulness to you. So last week, we looked at the first three verses of this letter, which part of the introduction. We saw that although Paul had the credential and authority of apostle, he's called out by God's will, he decided to approach these Corinthians with grace and gentleness instead of just jumping down their throats and getting on their case. I don't know about you, but I really get the sense in reading this that Paul didn't care so much about winning an argument to boost his ego. Instead, he wanted to win back, genuinely win back the hearts of his brothers and sisters who were going wayward. Starting now with verse 4, we're going to explore the rest of Paul's introduction, and then so next week we'll really get into the nitty-gritty of the arguments, okay? So this is the rest of the introduction. In Paul's time and culture, letters began with the author identifying themselves. Think about that, how we do letters. It's very different. We usually say, dear schoon, um, yeah, how are you doing? And, and then we say who we are later. Uh, but in, in the ancient world, it was the author comes first. Then the recipient of the letter. Next came the official greeting. And then usually a blessing or a prayer 
followed by the body of the letter, and then ending in a, in a salutation or a blessing. Okay, so here's the thing with Paul's prayer of thanksgiving. It is different than it is with the other churches. First of all, in Galatians, he doesn't even give them a prayer of thanksgiving. He just blasts them right out because that's a different cultural situation. But Kenneth Bailey points out that to the Romans, Paul thanks God for their faith. To the Philippians, he is thankful for their partnership in the gospel. To the Colossians, he's thankful for their love and their faith. To the church in Thessalonica, he gives thanks for their faith and their hope and their love. But to these Corinthians, who were not being loving or faithful or great partners in ministry, Paul writes all that he can that is positive and not a lie. He's thankful to God for the grace that God gave them in Jesus. It's like when you're a kid and you do some project at school for your parents for Christmas or something, and it's like a, a mug. And I was colorblind and crafty challenged anyway, so I thought, oh, this color's pretty. Oh, this color would be pretty too. And then by the time, it's just brown, right? And it is, it's amorphous, and then it gets hard. And you bring it in, and your mom or your dad's like, thank you for working so hard on this vessel, that whole hot liquid. You know, it's, I mean, they're trying really hard to say something positive about this thing that you created. Now, the difference here with Paul is that he's not saying anything like, hey, thanks you guys for trying so hard, or I thank my God for your well-thought-out arguments, because really they're trash arguments. And he's gonna, we'll see that in a minute, or in the weeks to come. None of that will do for Paul. He's not going to lie. He's not a guy to schmooze things over. He's going to say as positive as he can, but he's not going to, uh, to make false, false statements. But what Paul can say with great integrity is that he is thankful to God for God's graceful work in this community of Christians and his work in them and through them. In verses 1 through 3, Paul lays a foundation for the whole letter. He reminds the Corinthians that God is the one who calls and equips. God gives grace. God rescues. And in particular, God called Paul to be an apostle, to be an eyewitness to Jesus and to preach that message to the people. Paul was a purveyor of the apostolic tradition. He's passing on what he has seen and heard of Jesus. He's an apostle. Second, he reminds the Corinthians of who they really are in Christ. They are saints in Christ. They are holy ones. They are declared, whether or not they're living that way or not, they are declared part of the people of God. They are grafted into God's story. And this is such an important point because I, honestly, as I read this just as a, as a human being, as a, a critic of things that I read, I have my doubts as to whether or not Paul really likes many of the people that are causing all this strife. I have my doubts that if Paul were to choose, I mean, if someone was to say, hey, Paul, you could have four dinner guests from any of the places you've been to in the world. Uh, I have my doubts that he would choose any of the people from Corinth. I, I just think that they're so different culturally, ethnically, probably don't even like the same kind of food. I mean, it's just, they're just so different. And now they're having all this contention. I just have doubts, reservations of being able to say, you know, I bet you Paul just loved hanging out with these guys and, you know, just argued over these little nitpicky things. And yet, I firmly believe that Paul loves God. And for Paul, what God loves, this is like a rule of his, for Paul, what God loves, we should also love. 
Paul then loves the Corinthians because God loved them and God sent his son to die for them, even them. He chooses to love them. He takes his anger and his frustration and the guy is human, his, his chipped ego, he takes all of this, all of these negative feelings and he chooses to subordinate them to the will of Jesus. It's a fact of life, isn't it, that there are certain churches and certain people in those churches who you're just going to connect with more naturally. Each of us has a story, a background, a way of seeing the world. We all have personality traits that are unique to us. You know, some people are just going to be easier for you to talk to than other people. Some are going to see things like you see them, and that's just natural. But what is not natural in the flesh is to spend energy building and maintaining relationships or even being amiable to disciples of Jesus who are different than you. We can argue theologies and mission emphasis and worship style and purpose statements, but if someone is in the family of God, then they are your family. God loves them, died for them. And that means we are called to work at relating to all of our brothers and sisters. We're called to work at it. In the weeks to come, we're going to see Paul challenge these Corinthians directly. He's going to challenge them on really bad theology. He's going to challenge them on some sinful practices that they're involved in. But all of that, these first nine verses tell us, is done out of love and concern for the church that God loves to come back into obedience in Jesus. And I'm going to keep bringing us back to these nine verses because we're going to get down in some ugly, drawn-out arguments. And it's going to be important for us to remember that Paul is doing this out of love. And he's doing it because God loves them. And, and I think that there's a side point here. Maybe it's not a side. Maybe this is the big takeaway for you today. But don't give up on a brother or a sister or a mother or a father or friend. Don't write them off. Their destiny is not in your hands anyway. So pray for them to the Father who is faithful and be open. Now, this is the hard part. Praying for someone is easier than being open to God's change in their lives. So, back to Paul. He chooses to affirm what he can. And he can affirm that they are God's church, made holy in Christ. They've been given gifts of grace uh, from God. And these gifts of the Spirit are confirmation or proof or testimony that the, the, the testimony of Christ has actually entered their hearts, that they have really surrendered at one point in their walk because they've got now these spiritual gifts. Paul affirms that they've been enriched or gifted in everything, and this gets fleshed out later in the letter, so I'm not going to go into great detail. But the basic general fundamental belief is that each church, including this one, is fully equipped to do what God calls us to do. That means that all the people that call Letter Streets part of their their home church, and are following Jesus, you're, you have a spiritual gift, at least one. And that there's nothing that God is going to call us to do with the people he's given us that we don't have the gifts to do. Isn't that amazing? So let me ask you this. How, how are you using your spiritual gifts? Don't know? Let's talk. Don't know what spiritual gifts you have? 
Let's talk. And I, I'm serious. Like right now, you could be writing down, reminder, make an appointment with Chris to talk about spiritual gifts. Because this is a big part of, of, uh, of ecclesiology. It's a big part of uh, what we believe about the church, biblically, that, that the church is equipped by God. And so is this Corinthian church, even as screwed up as they were. All right. So we're going to notice Paul highlighting two gifts in particular. They are speech and knowledge. First, let me give you an overview of what these two gifts might refer to, and then I'm going to give you my take on why Paul mentions these gifts. Let's start with speech. In the Greek, it literally is logos, which means word. We've, you know, logos Bible software just means, it means word. Actually, faith life now. Sorry about that. The gift of words. This would include things like preaching and teaching and prophecy and speaking in other languages and speaking in other tongues, heavenly languages. And the gift of knowledge or gnosis has to do with special knowledge or revelation from the Spirit in terms of discernment or insight into Scripture. You know, in an oral culture, even more than ours, you know, in our culture, someone could have the gift of knowledge and maybe what they do is write books. But in this culture where there's 18% illiterate, uh, 18% literacy, uh, literate would mean you could read more than just the street signs to get around in Corinth. Um, most people couldn't write very well or read so it's an oral culture so if you have the gift of knowledge then it usually was accompanied by the gift of words as well so you could communicate that knowledge to people now of all the gifts why does paul highlight these two for the first part of the answer to that question let me make an observation these two gifts logos word and wisdom or knowledge are only mentioned in this form in the two Corinthian letters, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Isn't that interesting? Paul talks about spiritual gifts in other places, but never these two in other places. Scholars believe that that is because it was the Corinthians who referred to their gifts of speech by this word logos and their gift of knowledge by this term gnosis. And what I am saying is that Paul is using terms here that the Corinthians themselves coined about themselves. He recognizes that God gave them these gifts, and he thanks God for that. But there's another reason. The Corinthians have become arrogant. They were becoming more proud of their gifts than they were about the relationship with the gift giver. They were becoming so drunk on their own power that they were rebelling against God's apostle and the founder of their church. In fact, much of this letter will involve Paul challenging them on specific issues of arrogance and faulty theology. And here he gives them a little preview. When they first heard this letter read in their assembly, uh, and they heard Paul using their coined terms of speech and knowledge, they would have been a bit confused, I think. Was Paul really affirming these gifts? Or was he challenging them? And they would soon find the answer would include the inclusive, yeah, he's doing both. God is the giver of all good things. From spiritual gifts and salvation to food and drink. He gives all good things. Our Father is not just the life giver. He is the gift giver. And so the proper stance for us is one of thanksgiving, appreciation, humility, joy, and obedience. The Corinthians, who began as thankful and appreciative, have now become entitled and arrogant and combative and competitive with one another. 
My gift is more important than your life. I'm more important. Paul is writing to set things straight. Things are going to get rough. The Corinthians will need to decide how they're going to react when confronted with truth. It will be up to them whether or not to repent and change their ways or to keep going down this path that they've begun. But Paul, hear this, Paul is not putting his faith in their faith. Paul is not writing this letter hoping that they alone will turn it around. Paul is not even asking the Corinthians to put faith in their own faith. Paul, as always, puts his faith in God's faithfulness. He says that Jesus Christ will confirm them as blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. That means on the last day, when Jesus returns in glory to judge the living and the dead, when he comes to bring heaven to earth, he's going to stand with all those who have placed their faith in him as Savior and Lord. This word confirm is used twice in verses 4 through 8. In the NIV, sometimes it's rendered keep. In the NRSV, it's rendered strengthened. But all these are just attempts at at rendering this Greek word, babainao, which at that time had meaning in two worlds. The first was legal, the legal world. It carried the meaning of securing or guaranteeing a contract. The second was this connotation with God's hesed, or his covenant-keeping love. God, in the Old Testament, was always shown to be faithful to keep his covenant to the people, even when they sinned. The Corinthians are part of that people through Christ. Through Jesus, they are adopted sons and daughters into the family of the Father. And so that means that Paul is banking that God is going to remain faithful to them. An acquaintance of mine told me a story last summer. He's a a fair bit older than me, and he and his wife years and years ago took in a foster child, a young girl. She was very young toddler but already so many horrible things had happened to her and this couple poured their love into this child did everything for her got counseling from a very early age for her invested in her made their home a place of joy and creativity and love But there was part of her on the inside that was telling her, I am unlovable, that's who I am, and I will prove it to you at every chance that I get. As a teenager, as she had more power in her person, she was always testing their relationship. She would run away at times. She would binge on drugs and alcohol at times. She would often date older boys. And as a young woman, she left home and was living with an abusive man broke her parents' hearts over and over again. Then one one night, my friend gets this call from his daughter. She's living hundreds of miles away across the country at the time. She's in another abusive relationship, a relationship she'd talked about leaving over and over again, but never could just get away, never could pull the trigger. But on this particular night, she called sobbing, terrified, the father talked to her and said, if I were to come, if I, if I were to come and get in a car right now and come get you, would you come home with me? And in a muffled whisper, she gets out, yeah, I'll never come home. 
And that's all he needed. So the dad gets in the car, and he drove, and he drove, and he drove, and he was exhausted. He picks her up, and all he wanted to do was sleep, but he knew she always would go back to these guys, so he knew he just needed to get her away. So he begins driving again, and halfway, so now he's gone over 150 miles, halfway between where he picked her up and where home is, he finally says, let's pull in to your uncle's house, my brother's house, and we'll go there, and we'll spend the night. So they get to this house, and he goes to sleep, and his daughter sits at the kitchen table with the uncle, uncle and, and her head is bowed, and she's just feeling horrible, and the uncle breaks the silence and says, well, how does it feel? How does it feel? How does it feel to be nearly 30 with no money and no dignity? How does it feel to be a loser with no prospects? Oh, my dear, how does it feel to be the kind of woman whose father would drive across the country in the middle of the night to pick up, to bring home safe? And it's mysterious how these things happen. She'd heard loving things many, many times before, but that's what did it. The wall holding back all the love that had been showered on her finally broke under the relentless power of a father's love. And to me, the story is so powerful because it reveals, I think, just in, in minuscule degree of the father's relentless love for you. He knows full well your rebellion. He knows full well the Corinthian in you. But don't put your faith in you. Put it in the faithfulness of God who sent Jesus on your behalf and on my behalf. That's what Paul's getting at here. That's the message, I think, for the Corinthian church and for this church and for all time. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your truly relentless love. Thank you that you never give up, even when we have written ourselves off or written each other off. I pray, Lord, for each one of us that still has um, a wall up, resisting your love, telling ourselves that it can't be true, that, that even if the person sitting to the right or left of us is lovable, that we surely can't be lovable. I pray for the power, Holy Spirit, of breakthrough today. Of breaking chains of bondage of lies that go through our head about who we think we are and who we think we aren't. Lord Jesus, would you set captives free today? Help us to receive your love. To trust you with great joy and faithful obedience. You are the life giver. Amen.